0: Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, Bill Gaddens, ETSU College of Pharmacy. Today, uh, by request, by referral, um, from uh, one of our guests' uh, classmates from pharmacy school, way up the tip of Michigan, Colton, uh, recommended uh, Jackie uh, Saunders, who is a... uh, in, uh, investigational drug service, uh, pharmacist at, uh, at Johns Hopkins. So welcome to the podcast, Jackie.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how, uh, you kind of your career path into investigational drug services or IDS as we'll call it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I currently serve as operations manager for the oncology investigational drug service at the Johns Hopkins hospital, Uh, Originally, I'm from the great state of Michigan. Uh, I completed my undergraduate studies at Michigan State University and then went on to pharmacy school at Ferris State University. Uh, During that time, I was involved more in research from a bench work research perspective, um, mostly in oncology. Um, But afterwards, I completed or pursued a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency and then a PGY-2 specializing in investigational drugs and research pharmacy. And I think that this career path or this specific area of pharmacy practice interests me because um, it was involving my continued or existing research that I had done during undergraduate and pharmacy school and can kind of continued on to stay involved in clinical research, but just a different different perspective. Um, so I've been in my current role for about two and a half years, um, and again, that's operations manager now. so.
0: Well, wow, it's a great, great place to do some undergraduate research in oncology uh, at Michigan yes. State, as we all know, with the the origin of And So we've had one uh, University of Michigan guest on the podcast, and now one Michigan State undergrad. <laughs> so, so we're tied there in the uh, in that rivalry. Um, Jackie, take us through kind of the the workflow um, in, a, in a in an IDS pharmacy, and let's kind of start with. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, let's say it's a, a pharmaceutical company or whoever has um, a, a study that they want to open at your site. Uh, wh- what's kind of the first thing that you all do, um, you know, before a patient is enrolled and, and you're figuring out, how do we do this um, this drug that, that maybe has not been given to humans before or not been given to very many humans before? Uh, and certainly maybe not at your institution.
1: Yeah. So usually from a pharmacy perspective, we're notified when a study is planning to open. So the feasibility um, has usually been um, determined or completed prior to the, getting to pharmacy, for example. So our pharmacist will create a budget. We review build orders. We attend the site initiation visit or the SIV, which is commonly referred to. Um, and then um, you know, we end up waiting for for shipment to arrive, and then the notification of a potential patient or subject. So that's that's kind of the progression, I guess, of how things um, are initiated. So once we're notified, like I said, of that first first study, uh, that's that's kind of the order that it happens in.
0: So when you talk about feasibility, has already been determined. Is that more? Um, oh, we have uh, the patients. To, to study this sort of whatever the research question is, or is it, um, you know, has there been a, a situation where pharmacy, you know, uh, when your department wasn't involved early enough, it's like, well, this is going to be really challenging for us because this drug takes however long to prepare or has special Um, storage requirements that we're not equipped for right now? Has that ever
1: happened? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, A lot of times it will have to do with what equipment we have on site. Um, There are instances where it may have been helpful to involve pharmacy more early on within that feasibility determination because we find out towards the back end that like you said, yeah, we have to think through some things, how we're going to actually make this happen. Can we make this happen? And just being adaptable to to those particular requests for that, that study. So yes.
0: Yeah. I remember in my residency, I was, uh, I, I forget, I, I think I was sitting in on an IRB meeting and it was about an investigational drug that had a very short half life. Mm-hmm. And the target population was in the, I think the emergency department. And they are like, well, this is not a drug you can prepare in advance. And most of the time this can be given after traditional IDS hours. Mm-hmm. Anyone thought about how we're going to do that? And does that come into the budget planning that you talked about? Do you guys have to sometimes extend your hours or have people uh, on site uh, overnight or weekends when maybe you wouldn't otherwise for certain protocols?
1: Yeah, that's another good question. So, um, here uh, at Johns Hopkins, we have two different IDS pharmacies. So we have a non-oncology IDS and then the IDS that I work in, which is the oncology. Uh, we both have traditional pharmacy hours. So Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to, to 5 or 5.30 p.m. No weekends or holidays. We do have 24-7 on-call coverage. So in the event that something comes up, usually we know about things ahead of time. So we're, we're able to plan or we have our satellite pharmacies like the other pharmacy divisions are kind of involved at least in knowing of how to prepare something in advance if we need to, to do something during off hours. Otherwise um, we would have a uh, research pharmacist perhaps come on site if they had to prepare a medication. If it was gonna happen routinely though, um, like I said we usually know about that in advance so at least we can communicate or hand off to the other pharmacies if that was to happen.
0: What would be an example of some of the special equipment that you might need for an investigational drug? Cause so I would imagine some of these drugs are far enough along in, in the research process. There's a, there's a, a pharmaceutical dosage form that would be ready for, for sale potentially. It's already, you know, mm-hmm. it's already ready for reconstitution, and everything. And sometimes it's, uh, do you get just like a bolt powder sometimes, and you have to do things from, from, from the scratch, from scratch almost.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. We do not. So we have certain, um, I guess we have our own standard operating procedures. So we have requirements for when we get a drug from a sponsor or a pharmaceutical company, it has to meet certain requirements in labeling and how it's provided to us for us to be able to prepare it and then, um, you know, administer that to the patient. Um, I guess for equipment, you know, it ranges from having a minus 20 to a minus 80 freezer to there's some, you know, we're looking at, there's a study that's looking at some, I don't know how much I can say that's proprietary or not. So I'll try to limit it just to make it more general, but light sensitivity studies or um, like this particular Product is light sensitive, so you have to do some things in between. They provide this equipment that's um, handled in the OR, but we prepare the drug ahead of time, and they do some things on the back end for the patient in the uh, operating room. Um, but I mean, just some—not all sites have that minus eighty or minus twenty freezer. There's other equipment. You know, we have um, some drugs that have to stay stay cool, so you have this. Um, I'm trying to think of what the word is, but it's, it's stored in a minus 20 freezer and then you prepare it in the hood in this cool um, container essentially, just to make sure the product stays cool, um, which is a little interesting. So there's different things like that. A lot of times if it does require special equipment, um, I would say most oftentimes the sponsor will offer or provide that equipment to you, um, depending on who the sponsor is. Um, other times they just make sure you have this equipment on site um, so it really ranges and it really depends on the study. So there's this kind of like wide range of determination prior to that being set up at the site.
0: Yeah. So for that, I'm going to call it the cold hood. Yeah. <laughs> Do, is it so cold that you need to wear like gloves for warmth? A- no,
1: it's interesting because it's kind of, um, insulated on the outside. So you could touch it on the outside, but in inside it keeps the investigational product cool, um, and you have to put the syringes in there as well, so everything has to stay cool within the preparation process.
0: Okay, it um, sounds it sounds that sounds logistically challenging to me.
1: Yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah. Okay.
0: So so you got a you got a you got a study that's opening, all right? And and the first patient is enrolled or whatever. Um, take take us through. You know, a, a patient is being enrolled in the study, and and they've done the informed consent process. That doesn't happen in your guys' department, I assume. And they're going to come Tuesday at 9 a.m.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: for this drug. So then what happens from you in there? Because this is not like a pharmacist dispensing uh, Rocephin one gram, right? These, these are <laughs> not prescription drugs. They're not FDA approved. They're investigational. So there, there's some different requirements, labeling and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So what goes into it then?
1: Yeah, so from our end, we will check for informed consent prior or during the dispensing process on our end. Um, There are authorized prescribers, so people who are able to prescribe for this particular study, so you have to make sure that provider who signed the orders is authorized to prescribe that investigational drug. Um, Sometimes it will depend for us whether or not if it's an IV or an oral dispensation. So for our IV products, our site, prepares like a preparation sheet or the sponsor has a preparation sheet that we follow. So that's provided to the technicians to make sure everybody knows how to compound this product appropriately and according to the protocol. Um, we do, since we're in a, our, our institutional procedure is at least to do two pharmacist checks um, for the chemotherapy drug. Um, so we have two Epic checks and we use a um, electronic I guess, protocol or inventory management system. So we also do two checks within that system um, and that's specific for IDS. And then it would go in the back to be compounded if it was an IV product Our oral products are similar. It just doesn't have to go uh, in the back to be to be compounded. Um, so um, I guess that's the the checking process. I don't know if that answers your yeah, so, question.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, from, so you're double checking the math that sort of stuff, drug concentration. Yes. Does this require, like you said, does it require protection from there Are there special tubing requirements, things like that. For, for a lot of studies, there are uh, a lot of labs that are required. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I were dispensing, you know, a, a, an parent prescription or something like that, I, and I'm in the hospital, I, I'd look to see what their seeing is, make sure the dose is right. Okay. Right. But I'm not, you know, there's not a requirement that the credit has to be within the last day or two days or something like that. Yes. So I could see there are labs that have to be done by protocol. Yes. And some of those labs are pertinent to whether or not you're able to dispense the drug or mm-hmm. you guys look at all those or just ones that are pertinent to drug safety.
1: Yeah. No, that's also a good question. So it depends on the study. They'll have these notified parameters. So we check the labs, we check the orders to make sure it was signed appropriately. But in sometimes I guess going back to the labs, they do have those parameters where it has to be drawn in, within one day of cycle, one day one or two days or, you know, whatever that's specified within that particular protocol. So those are something that's listed within the treatment plan for us. So we check those um, prior to, to releasing the drug.
0: Okay. How do you guys keep track of, you know, a placebo controlled study? How do you keep track
1: yeah.
0: of, uh, this patient is getting active drug. This patient is getting placebo.
1: So not let the
0: doctors know, not let the patients yeah. know. So it really is placebo controlled.
1: Yeah. Um, so sometimes, uh, pharmacy is the only unblinded participant in the study. Um, so in that instance, we would have to just be careful on how The drug is labeled so a lot of times it would be you know cisplatin slash placebo for example you know whatever the the drug is Um, so just on the label itself and what's provided to the study team and the participant there's no way of knowing whether or not it's an active or a placebo drug and sometimes that even involves in um just making sure both the active and the placebo look exactly the same so in addition to the label if there's any other covering if it was light sensitive or Um, any other considerations, just making sure it looks exactly the same. Um, and then sometimes pharmacy is also, uh, blinded. So in that instance, like we get the drug from the sponsor and it's labeled just as such, it's this active drug slash placebo. So that way nobody really knows if it's active or placebo and we prepare it according to the protocol. Um, and there are emergency unblinding procedures. So, if the patient had some sort of adverse uh, drug reaction, and we needed to to um, unblind the study participant or somebody on the research team, we could do that. <clears throat> and that's yeah. usually listed within the pharmacy manual or the protocol.
0: Yeah. So, the pharmacy manual. Tell us a little bit about the, the pharmacy manual. <laughs> if you go to, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine, a newly, you know, a, a, a phase one study gets published at the New England Journal of Medicine, you can find the protocol.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it'll, you know, the, the the introduction of the protocol is a really good review article about the history of this disease and, and drug sometimes, but it doesn't have the detail that is in the pharmacy manual. So what sort of what sort of information is found there?
1: Yeah, I mean, we in pharmacy use that, you know, like that's kind of our go-to reference for the study. So that'll have information on the drug itself, how to appropriately prepare it. You know, for shipments, how the first initial shipment is sent to your site, Um, you know how to store the drug appropriately within like your temperature ranges, and some other requirements if there's any pharmacy specific requirements if we use like an interactive response technology or an IRT system. and I, I, that covers the majority of what's in the pharmacy manual. I think what we really obviously focus on is, you know, how to prepare the drug appropriately. So that's really the, the main focus. And the other stuff is also important, but that's, that's the primary thing.
0: From a requirement standpoint, <laughs> I imagine there are different legal requirements for investigational drugs. Um, you probably have institutional requirements and maybe mm-hmm. sponsor requirements uh how how well aligned are all those requirements or are there conflicts sometimes where um maybe it doesn't make sense what your what the requirements are does that happen or, or talk us through some of the um you know some of the safeguards that have to be in place when you have a product that you don't even know if it's active drug or uh or placebo and just keeping track of lot number and things like that
1: yeah um so I guess walking through, there's definitely requirements on a federal level, on a state level, and as you had mentioned, on a sponsor level, as well as our own institutional policies. So I would say, um, you know, you have to make sure you're following all of these requirements. I think the more that our SOPs or standard operating procedures are pretty in line with all of the federal, state, and Sometimes there's wiggle room or there's discussion uh, between the sponsor uh, requirements. Um, you know, whether or not we use, for example, their interactive response technology um, or their sponsor specific websites to do our own drug accountability. Since we use our own electronic form, for example, we don't do any duplicate um, entries in their IRT system. So you do have some discussions back and forth. Um, that's discussed on the front end prior to like contracts and things being signed. So, um, but I would say for the most part, you just have to make sure that you are following all of these procedures. Uh, so it is sometimes a lot to consider, but as long as like, like I said, for us, our institutional, if we know our SOPs and we're following those, then we're we're pretty in line with, with everything that we need to, to be in line with. And those
0: so uh, I, uh, let me go back to, um, to my PGY2 oncology residency and the, and the ASHP stand, accreditation standards for oncology mandate, some sort of investigational drug service experience. So I did a two week mm-hmm. mini experience. And I remember, um, you know, a drug would would be delivered and it would be in a container that had um, a, a temperature sensor to make sure it was at the right temperature, a safe temperature. And I remember having to document that
1: mm-hmm.
0: in three different binders. And one was for the sponsor and one was for the institution. And one I don't know what the other one was for, but I remember doing a lot of things in triplicate <laughs> um, and, and it was all by hand. And that was when uh, I decided that maybe investigational drugs was not something I wanted to go into. Um, but, you know, do you have um, um, PGY2 residents, in either oncology that, that come through there and your own IDS residents, what sort of um, activities are they doing? Uh, in your department?
1: Yeah, we have both oncology PGY2 residents as well as our own investigational drugs and research pharmacy residents, uh, PGY1 and 2, rotate with us. Um, I will say for the oncology residents, one of my coworkers precepts them, and I know that they have some staffing requirements, so they kind of see the operations of IDS. Um, they're required to do a budget, attend an SIV. Um, This particular pharmacist also sits on the IRB, so they're able to attend at least one IRB meeting with her typically. Um, And I think there's maybe some other longitudinal requirements. I will say the difference between the oncology residents in our investigational drugs and research pharmacy residents is that for our IDNR residents, we're able to have them longitudinally oversee a study, which is a little bit different, so they can understand the nuances, the ins and outs, and kind of what goes on in the background. Um, for, for studies, um, which they'll, you know, need to know after residency, but at least they have that firsthand experience, but they'll also, um, they have, they'll do the, the budgets, attend the SIV and everything else that the oncology residents do.
0: And SIV, site initiation visit, is that what that is? Okay. Okay. I'm great with acronyms. Um, So tell (laughs) us about, you know, not just the site initiation visit, but I remember the sponsors would come back or, or, a, a liaison of the sponsor or, or an agent of the sponsor would come back. And uh, I, maybe I think of like an accounting term, they'd come and look at the books,
1: mm-hmm. come and
0: look at, are you following your own procedures and policies uh, to the letter of the the law? And are you doing what, what we say you should be doing for this? Um, what, what, what is that process like when they come to the, to the IDS pharmacy?
1: Yeah, those are called monitoring visits. Um, So sometimes that's, like you had mentioned, a liaison directly with the pharmaceutical company. Sometimes they use contract research organizations or CROs. So that could be Covance or, you know, there's a lot of different other companies. Um, So they'll come on site, Um, depends. uh, Typically it's once a month if you have active patients enrolled in the study. So they'll review the drug accountability records, making sure, like you said, everything's being done appropriately and documented lot numbers, kit numbers, item numbers, everything um, that it was signed off by two pharmacists in our case. Um, So for us, we use, like I said, this electronic protocol or inventory management system. So we're able to do a lot of the monitoring visits. um, And this was especially convenient during the pandemic. um, We can do those monitoring visits remotely. So that's provided, I think a lot of convenience and a lot of ease at least so they can review whatever they need to review for the records. Um, and they don't have to come on site maybe as much as they previously had. So pre pandemic, they would come on site once a month and you would walk them through you would show them the inventory. Like I said, the drug accountability records, um, where the inventory was stored making sure everything is kind of up to snuff.
0: Yeah. And so some of those efficiencies uh, are still in place after, uh, after the worst of the pandemic or after the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Thankfully, I think that it's created, like you said, it is much more efficient um, so for us, it's convenient. We can set them up through the system that we use and um, they don't necessarily have to be on site.
0: I would imagine it, it uh, costs less money too. people not yes. to travel and flights exactly. to and stuff like that. Yes. Um, what would you say is the most challenging part of, of being an IDS pharmacist?
1: Yeah, I think that the most challenging part is that every study is a little bit different. So you develop all these processes and it's not necessarily that your processes, it's not necessarily a one size fits all. So you kind of have to have this like processes in place that can be adaptable and flexible to studies that can come down the pipeline. Um, and I think in addition to having the processes that are adaptable and flexible, your staff members also have to be um, as such as well, just kind of being able to learn these new um, equipment if we're using that or just systems and things that are coming in down the, the pipeline for a particular study. So it's just every day is a little bit different, which is challenging. It also makes things interesting, I think. So that's why I like it. But um, I would say that's probably the most challenging thing.
0: Yeah. Well, is that the most rewarding part of it is that it is interesting that you're seeing maybe what is the next big thing or, you, you know, is it you get to you know, you get to use maybe some medicinal chemistry and, and stuff like yeah. that, that maybe uh, classmates from farm school uh, have happily forgotten.
1: I would say that's one of the most rewarding things. I think it's just that patient care aspect and knowing that what you're you're giving them could help, you know, save the, their lives, especially in instances because we're in cancer. Um, some of these patients, unfortunately, this is could be one of their last um, options. Um, so if it helps them, I think that's really a wonderful thing. So I think being a part of that is special.
0: Yeah. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, um, well, that sounds pretty interesting. I think I might wanna do this. What advice would you have for, you know, for a pharmacy student who's, who, who wants to maybe pursue investigational drug services?
1: Yeah, I think that if they have the opportunity um, to shadow an IDS pharmacy, I think that would be very valuable. Not everybody has that opportunity, but even um, kind of understanding and looking up uh, what an IDS pharmacist does. um, I think that it's a really unique area of practice for pharmacy. Um, So I think that there's also a lot of potential in this area, especially there's um, new residency opportunities that have really blossomed within the last five years. Um, So there's actually 11 programs now for um, residency opportunities in this specialty area, which I think is great. Um, And I think that, you know, IDS, historically speaking, has been pretty operations-based, but there's increased opportunities with like clinical practice applications especially in the early phase studies and technology adaption and as well as advancement so i think like i said just a lot of areas of opportunity in this in this this field
0: yeah um what you know kind of a long i i got maybe two more questions for you um and this was kind of inspired by the the pandemic thing as some stuff changing for the good mm-hmm. um what in your time at ideas have you seen any trends um of of you know, where, where things have changed and, and how, and how you all are are doing things with investigational drugs?
1: Um, I mean, even comparing what you had mentioned, where you were writing things in triplicate during your experience, I think that things have moved and we've adapted more technology and, um, you know, using, like I said, even this electronic inventory and protocol management system, I think has made a big difference. I think there's additional room for increased efficiencies. Um, what that looks like, I don't know exactly, but I just, I, um, I think it's, it's something that could, like just down the road, there's definitely things that could be looked at. Um, and then I guess for us specifically within the pandemic, I mean, one example that really comes to mind is that we're, you know, we ship directly to, to participants for some studies that, that allow it. So during the pandemic, when patients weren't necessarily coming on site um, they provided us just the okay that we could ship directly to participants. And that's continued on. We're not necessarily post pandemic yet, but you know, like things have kind of normalized or at least come back a little bit to normal. So that's continued on. And that's definitely a big difference in practice. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of different areas still though in the future that things could change. So,
0: okay. Last question for you, Jackie, let's say, um, you know, there's a, Uh, you know, a mid-level clinician or uh, an oncology nurse or oncologist listening, what what would you want, you know, somebody who's working with patients to know about investigational drug pharmacy that they may not know
1: otherwise? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think... just a general maybe understanding. I don't know if necessarily patients would have to know this, but people that we work with per se or just people who don't maybe understand IDS pharmacy that well. Um, I think that there's a lot of moving pieces and parts within research in general, especially in IDS. Um, so I think that the pharmacists that work within this area have like a specific or um, increased attention to detail and being able to balance a lot of these moving parts. So just that it might be um, it's definitely more. Uh, there's more going on than what you initially see with an IDS. I don't know if that makes sense, but I would say that it's like more complicated than to what meets the eye. There's a lot of stuff that goes in on the background that people don't necessarily see with IDS. So I think that it's sometimes misunderstood.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it almost sounds like you know, as pharmacists, we often say the pharmacy is not like a, a drive-through restaurant. Yes. Um, and it sounds like. Um, it's may is maybe the same thing with an IDS pharmacy but to a higher degree
1: right um, right
0: the complexity and that um you know the turnaround time is going to be longer because there are a lot more checks and balances and requirements and documentation uh required to to keep things uh safe because you're you're dealing with something that is um potentially more dangerous than a prescription drug which is already, right. Uh, potentially deadly if used incorrectly so mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that would be that would be my expectation well thank you so much Jackie um, thank you. really appreciate that and if uh, anyone listening wants uh, to get in contact with Jackie they can, uh, they can get in contact with me via email uh, or uh, social media and I can get you uh, Jackie's email address if you want to connect professionally with her uh, or bounce ideas off her if you have questions thanks Jackie
1: great thank you